to That's So Second Millennium, episode 45, and I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to you today because we have Daniel Henshaw on the podcast, who is uh, an emeritus faculty at the uh, University of Michigan and has done a number of interesting things in the past 20 years that I'll let him explain in more detail. But uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, it sounds like we're both uh, whiling away a, uh, a cold winter's day here in the Midwest. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll put it to good use here. So um, I first uh, came across, I, I, I first uh, learned about you and your work because uh, you're, uh, you, you just finished a semester at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Studies. You've been you've been at the University of Michigan. You've been at the uh, St. Vladimir's uh, Seminary in in New York. Yeah, am I getting that wrong? No, okay. it's, it's a theological seminary. Yeah, yeah, it's an Eastern Orthodox seminary, as I recall. Uh huh. And, and yeah. also, uh, and also another uh, is it another seminary in Beirut? Uh, yeah, the. the uh it's interesting, out, outside the United States, theological seminaries, as we know them, are often referred to as theological faculties at universities. And, and so it's okay, a, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a program that trains undergraduates to become clergy, as well as uh, provides postgraduate uh, training at, at higher levels uh, for uh, clergy in the patriarchate, uh, patriarchate of Antioch, one of the ancient patriarchates. Uh, yeah. One of, one of the original big three. Or, yeah, originally big three and then, uh, and then Constantinople and then, and then, and then Jerusalem later. Yeah, those two. But yeah, so the, uh, and I also teach in a master's program in, in Romania, uh, or have for several years. Okay. Okay. And, and is that, does that also have a religious context to it or is that more, uh, well, the subject matter that I teach, yeah, it relates to religious issues, but it's it's actually a, a a part of a master's degree program in palliative care, which is an interesting okay. way that uh, some of the postgraduate training in in these health related fields uh, occurs out in in the European context. And so, amongst the Balkan region, this has really been the first program uh, to develop uh, an effort to train. People who may be administrators, maybe chaplains, they may be physicians, nurses, social workers, pharmacists, physical therapists, and so on, who work with uh, patients who have advanced illnesses or near the end of life uh, to, to give them uh, additional training in the, in the field. So it's a two-year program. Uh, probably I'd say mainly nurses and physicians, but I, I, we've had a, the whole range, a, a gamut of, of individuals who have been involved. Uh, and it's, and my course that I teach is in the second semester of the first year, which is on, uh, cultural, uh, issues, uh, along with spirituality and the nature of suffering, uh, in kind of the broadest context, and so it, so it's something that all of the students will get because otherwise some of their tracks kind of target more of a clinical focus for those who are clinicians and a more of an administrative focus for for those who are more functioning as administrators within hospice and palliative care. 
but I get all of the students, which really makes it an interesting course because they come from all walks of, of life and, and professional backgrounds and uh, bring their perspectives to a discussion of the phenomenon of suffering. And mm -hmm. it's uh, cultural and, and uh, ultimately spiritual cognates. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's uh, sort of the core thing that I've done in Eastern Europe, but I... Surrounding that, there are a number of other projects that, that I've been involved with, including uh, a more recent one, which is very exciting, and that is being uh, my colleagues there develop a curriculum for medical oncology trainees. So these are specialists who will be practicing uh, clinicians in oncology, uh, giving them a... a formal training uh, during their residency in palliative medicine, which is very limited in this country. And so the, the, yeah. the curriculum that we're using or what we've developed it from has been basically structured uh, on recommendations that were put together by the American Society for Clinical Oncology and its corresponding society in Europe. And, and so a, a colleague from Switzerland and, and I have been helping with the uh, our Romanian colleagues as they really develop what is a unique kind of program that will hopefully be about a three month long, uh, not only formal didactic process, but also, uh, hands on kinds of training yeah. for these young clinicians. And just to give you kind of a feeling for the, the standard kind of exposure that the same type of people will be getting training here in the United States, it's maybe at best two weeks and they yeah. often have other, other commitments. Yeah. Uh, with very, very little formal didactic component. So would, would that be taking place during their residency or at some other point in the process? Yeah, it's usually, during, well, or during their fellowship here. I mean, usually there's sort yeah. of a medical school, then an, uh, internal medicine, and then they transition into a fellowship. Uh, mm -hmm. There, they track, I think, usually from medical school right into, you know, I'm going to become an oncologist or, yeah. or a surgeon or whatever. And so they, they have a longer period where they, uh, in some ways, can, uh, you know, shoehorn this material in maybe, but, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's sad because, uh, medical oncologists are dealing with human suffering all the time. Yeah. And, and if they don't know how to, uh, care for their patients who are not going to be cured, and, and a significant majority probably will, will not be, be cured, they will be living with their illness. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's sad that that's not a, a bigger focus. Of the, yeah. of the training, and that that's that's probably uh, ref, uh, reflective of of how our medical culture has developed, though in the United States, it's, yeah. it's really a culture that is focused on disease identification and then mm -hmm. aggressive treatment of the disease, and and we're yeah. really good at that. I mean, that's how I was taught. I was, yeah. I was originally trained as a surgeon, uh, and and when I was coming out of medical school, it's very intoxicating. I was going to yeah. You know, cut cut the disease out and take care of it. And that was going to be yeah. that. It yeah. took me longer during the during my career to kind of reflect on the fact. You know, all my patients are going to eventually die, and and of course, yeah. when I've even cured their diseases, sometimes yes. I have been successful doing that. It's also come at a price. Sometimes there's uh, intense uh, chronic pain or other forms of suffering that yeah. that accompany that wonderful cure. And and, yeah. and I didn't really have any way to address that. I did I, I was never trained on how to deal with that. 
until later yeah. when I when I got the uh, uh, was able to take a, a sabbatical fellowship and, and and receive training in palliative medicine, which was just a, it was like a kind of like St. Paul's you know scales falling from his eyes in a sense of seeing <laughs> yeah. see, seeing reality yeah. in a very different way. I I, yeah. I never realized what happened to my patients when I was sort of quotes done with them because I couldn't I didn't know what else to do for them. And yet right. they were still suffering. They were still um, suffering, and, and and they still yeah. needed human help. And and that 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 was a real revelation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's uh, you know. So it's it's very fortuitous that we're we've got the chance to talk to you today, as uh, we've been talking about for the last month that we're trying to change directions. The first eight months, you know, we, this is calendar year 2018 of the podcast. We've really been talking to talking to or talking about physics and metaphysics and you know some of the sort of basis on you know can we logically believe in god this is the, the physical universe but this is a completely different boundary area between science medicine in this case and uh, and humanity and faith in terms of what what do we do as human beings confronted with people who are suffering and all of the many many different ways people suffer yeah i think it's really uh you really summarize that nicely because the the dilemma in medicine, especially over the last 150 years, is that we've modeled ourselves in terms of our uh, approach, in terms of our academics and so on, uh, to emulate the physical sciences. And we don't have the same level of precision at all. The biology is messy. Yes, it's it's not something like you know being able to measure the speed of light with precision or or uh, other uh, relationships within nature that that you know can be defined so pre- uh, beautifully with mathematical formulas. We can try and and apply those kinds of concepts at a small level. But yes. The larger, but the larger you go, the 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 the, the the bigger picture that you try to look at in in the in the biological realm, and especially when you come to looking at the human person, you start to come up very quickly up against uh, a problem that has, I think, been very beautifully described actually by some of the early church fathers, and that is, I think, Saint Basil the Great, for example, one of the great fourth-century uh, uh, Cappadocian fathers, the East. Who happened mm-hmm. to be a physician, by the way, he's trained as a mm-hmm. physician as well. Um, yeah. Described the human person as a microcosm, a microcosmos. You know that that we are a mm-hmm. small universe, mm-hmm. and of course, even 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 biological uh, investigations have begun to, you know, on a physical level, appreciate how true that is. I mean, that we yeah. have. You know, right, what a tri- trillion bacteria or more just in our GI tract. We we, we right. live in this unusual symbiotic relationship. Of, we have our own ecology. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's becoming even more clear over time that that the relationships between this uh, you know microcosmic environment that we have with with the with the microorganisms that we live in such intimate contact with influences our our future. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. uh, they're there waiting. <laughs> they're waiting for us to die. <laughs> or they're maybe right. assisting us in that process of our mortality. Right. Uh, right. As they produce various kinds of toxins and, and, and factors that probably influence, uh, 
the rates at which people uh, uh, maybe w which our own you know genotypic uh, predetermination and so forth will influence the rates in which we develop cancers and other kinds of uh, chronic chronic illnesses that will eventually uh, lead to our to our death and so we have we have this ongoing relationship with with the natural world that, that we thankfully don't have to contemplate, I suppose, in great depth. Otherwise, we might be so paralyzed with anxiety that we wouldn't be able to find oh, yeah. it. But at the same time, when we do have a chance to reflect upon it, we can also be struck, I think, with a certain amount of awe you know, mm -hmm. that it all that it all uh, somehow works and, and works right. really beautifully more often than not. Right. And we take that, and, and the fact that we take that for granted is almost kind of a blasphemy to me. I mean, how can yeah. we think about these things and just sort of say, "Well, that's the way it is." You know, it's just been that way. That's yeah. that's just <laughs> how it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that really begs a lot of you know questions about contingency. Yeah, yeah, because we are completely contingent beings living on a contingent planet, orbiting a contingent star in a contingent galaxy, and on a chain. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 so we have all of, and so that and that the, the human person, of course, is made of all this stuff of the stars. <laughs> yeah, we 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 yeah. can't we can't exist as we are without the fact that the, the early early uh, star systems exploded and 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 created the the higher elements. Yeah, like yeah, carbon, and and so. So we have this relationship with with the the, the well, you could say speak to it much better than I can, but I mean it's sort of geological aspect, this large yeah. uh, uh, element that we we can only look up and stare at the at the sky and, and marvel at yeah. uh, that we're connected to that, we're, and we're connected in in so many ways that we're we're not we're not the isolated individuals that are so proud of our autonomy as we think we are or you know we, right. we need to sort of recognize that we are so interconnected yeah. uh, that we have to kind of hesitate and and uh, and maybe maybe even acquire some humility in the process yeah yeah and and we are social creatures and we you know from well before we're born we are taking in social input from the outside and reshaping it and then participating yeah. in that and affecting other people in ways that we have no no way of ever tracking down the details of, of what all our interactions did to other people. One of the fundamental aspects of, of I guess, my early training in medicine was the direction uh, or the understanding in the world of surgery uh, because surgery has always been sort of the ugly stepsister to, to the more... Really, Theor theoretical. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go back historically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, surgeons were not even really part of the medical guild in the Middle Ages. They were barbers, and they would cut <laughs> for barbers. Beers. Barber surgeons. Uh, okay, they, there you go. Yeah, but they would they would bleed you. They would you know do various ugly, disgusting tasks that a, a, a proper physician oh. would think would be beneath their dignity. Right. The uh, proper physician gives up on you and consigns you to the surgeon. Perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> but the but the interesting uh, aspect of this is that is that uh, the, the the violent catastrophe of war has been the 
has been the uh, catalyst for so much advance in the field of surgery and other aspects of medicine too, but but especially mm-hmm. surgery. And and so wound care, uh, but dealing with um, imminent you know imminent death in the terms of blood loss or some you know potentially immediate life-threatening situation. Uh, and, and all the trauma and inflammation and, and injury that is associated with with that with that context is is a kind of a, a central aspect, I guess, of of the surgeon's experience. And and so in my early career, moving toward an academic life, uh, it was almost natural for me to seek out a research experience. Uh, in that kind of arena. And so I ended up, uh, after my residency, where I'd done some research before that, uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship in immunology, uh, where I studied inflammation primarily, and, and specifically cell, cell injury and cell death. And so, I, ironically, now that I'm thinking about the, relation, the relationship of, of human suffering on a macroscopic scale, I guess, and, yeah. and, and, uh, the phenomenon of death uh, in a multiple different ways. It's always been informed in my own thinking by my earlier work, which was was uh, uh, bench research focused on understanding how cells uh, experience trauma uh, from various types of, of uh, injurious agents and how they either recover from that or how they or how they die. And and so that. That has been a uh, a major aspect of, of kind of informing, I guess, how I think about the world. And it's it's interesting that during my the course of my academic career, the, uh, a lot of that focus was on looking at derangements in cellular physiology. So we would look at differences in, in how calcium regulation occur, uh, uh, was dysregulated or damaged in in, in an injured cell, uh, looking at at uh, the role of of uh, oxidants of, of molecules that basically tear electrons away from other yeah. uh, other molecules, and 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 of course it can cause damage to cell membranes to fun- uh, destroy the function of of active uh, sites and proteins or you know that have catalytic functions, enzymes, all of these kinds of of vi- uh, vital functions that help retain the integrity of a cell. With its uh, ability to maintain an electrical grating across the membrane and so on, mm-hmm. these, these are things that were that were very I mean, they still are very interesting to me. But what also came along uh, in the midst of all of this was a growing awareness and, and uh, of of more subtle changes that that can be triggered by injurious agents such as hydrogen peroxide or uh, other other oxidizing agents that are present in, in in the uh, in inflammatory conditions, or where there's been trauma in, in the body, especially they can be generated by uh, activated uh, white blood cells and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and these that's and subtle, would the would the white blood cells be generating these oxidants in an attempt to actually destroy pathogens, and then they sort of accidentally affect the body? Yeah. So so there there are very there are various what appear to be almost redundant mechanisms that become activated in the in the, in the situation where the body perceives a threat mm-hmm. whether it's from a bacterial 
pathogen or some kind of massive injury that activates a whole host of, of normally protected mechanisms. And then if you have uh, uh, an ongoing stimulus, you know, kind of ramped up to, I don't know, if you want to use a, a metaphor of thinking about sound, you know, like 80 decibels of mm-hmm. loud noise in yeah. the body uh, attracting these uh, inflammatory cells to a particular site, then you end up with, with severe uh, localized and then eventually systemic injury. And so this was sort of a lot of the focus of, of the application of what I was looking at at a cellular level applied to what are conditions that are now part of what referred to as multiple organ failure, uh, like uh, uh, adult respiratory distress syndrome, which where neutrophils would could produce tremendous injury in the lung, leaky capillary membranes, fluid accumulates, uh, patients often uh, succumb because they because they they, they can't either shut off the inflammatory response and repair the damage in the lung and then they and then they become you know basically go into respiratory failure or the, and, and these same kinds of processes of course can spread to the brain to the to yeah. the kidneys to other vital structures mm-hmm. uh, where they're producing respectively delirium uh, kidney failure um, and if you have typically if you have three or more of uh, major organ systems failing, it's it, it's 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 not a guarantee that you're going to die, but the likelihood of, of surviving uh, a critical down. illness like that is very low. I mean, yeah. uh, there have been a lot of ways to help support people uh, to do better, but but it, I don't think it's fundamentally changed that much over the 30 to 40 years of, of my uh, clinical activity. So that th- those and it's the sort of over stimulation of these inflammatory systems that were really there to kind of protect it almost becomes like a uh an or you know a suicide response by the organism yeah. it's like o- yeah. overkill unfortunately yeah. Um, yeah. but what's interesting is that subtly in, in all of this uh much lower levels of of of, of traumatic exposure uh also produce potentially lethal injury but it just on a much slower time scale frequently. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that was, and of course, what's interesting about that is it probably has more applicability, um, in, in not just these sort of dramatic, uh, catastrophic kind of surgical illnesses, but also in the, in the kind of give and uh, take and, and wear and tear that occurs over, over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so you have, uh, this phenomenon called program cell death, or the, the uh, apoptosis. Uh, yeah, apoptosis, which was coined by a, a British, uh, uh, or at least first really described by a guy named Kerr uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the 19, early 1970s, but it was more of a morphologic changes of essentially like a, a cell uh, starts to bud. And, and fragments of the cell break off, like petals or, or leaves, you know, petals from a flower that are falling off, or, or leaves falling from a tree. So it's sort of the idea of, the, of what that Greek, wor- Greek word is supposed to convey. And, huh. and the, the morphologic changes that occur, that, that it really, it almost looks like, the, I mean, it, again, I hate to 
anthropomorphize, but I almost have to because this is what attracts you know an investigator. Yeah. You see something and it really gra- grabs your imagination. That yeah. that morphologic distress of, of a dying cell has really fascinated me for a long time, and that was really the, probably one of the main themes of my research uh, over the years was trying to understand some of the mechanisms behind how that uh, fragmentation of these cells would would uh, occur, and, um, and and what were the sorts of the, the kind of points of no return? You know what what governed it. Um, so I, the models that I worked with involved, as I mentioned, uh, some of these inflammatory oxidants like hydrogen peroxide. Sure. Um, and then and then later, I, I also uh, a lot of my research was basically funded or supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, the de- later the Department of Defense. And, and the, what's interesting is that alkylating agents, that, which are, are used, uh, these are the these are the classic agents that were first used to do chemotherapy. So, okay. uh, uh, so the, what happened is that, that people discovered after World War II that the same agents that had been banned, you know, by the Geneva Convention from mm-hmm. World War I, uh, the weapons of mass destruction, the sulfur, uh, sulfur mustard, the mustard gas, yeah. uh, that a very close cousin of that, and, and sulfur, and mustard, sulfur mustard itself, have anti-cancer properties. And they, yes. they, alkyl, they alkylate DNA, uh-huh. and what the, and what they do. And so, uh, so a lot of so a lot of my work was to try to demonstrate a theory or help confirm a theory that one of the early pioneers of studying sulfur mustard, how what he postulated that it was because of this alkylation of DNA mm-hmm. that was. Causing the death of of, of cells uh, that would lead to blistering because it's a these vesicants or blistering agents would yeah. create terror by by basically having cells uh, as sheets of cells lift off from the uh, basement membrane and then you'd you'd get these micro blisters and they would coalesce and so on and this had happened before uh, before the cells were actually fully dead and so I worked on some model uh, uh, in vitro models trying to demonstrate that 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 I could you know model that and then at the same time using human skin cells and also endothelial cells which are those the cells that line capillaries and uh, I found that that if we could, we could take the cells uh, and actually enucleate them create what are called cytoplasts and still and still uh, uh, they would still die but they didn't die by by the uh, apoptotic mechanisms, they, okay. they, they, they did, it depended on whether the nucleus was there present. So, so it was the nuclear damage, the DNA damage, presumably, that uh, triggered the apoptotic response to sulfonostic. Okay. So that was and, yeah. And so, the, anyway, the bottom, the practical uh, message of, of all this was we we were able to work out at least in each for a time scale for how much time you'd have to intervene. Mm-hmm. And so you'd, you'd have to use um, uh, reducing agents like glutathione, which is a three amino acid peptide, uh, to uh, basically compete with, so they would become the, the victim <laughs> for mustard. Right. So you'd, have, you'd yeah. have to have it, you'd have to have that almost basically on your person yeah. and know that you're being exposed to mustard gas yeah. and, 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 and try to compete with its, um, 
attacking DNA or attacking cells and, and migrating into tissues yeah. by uh, either saturating yourself uh, systemically with this agent to compete with it, or I suppose you could use some kind of topical way to do it. Sure. Uh, and Almost. yeah, but but you'd only have you'd only have like a few minutes to maybe maybe two or three hours. The yeah. the, the the program cell death would really start to be come evident by eight hours or so. Sure. Uh, yeah. And and the blistering sooner. But the other creepy thing about this particular uh, chemical warfare agent is that it it would um, uh, you wouldn't know that you had a significant exposure of it until you could taste. Uh, uh, it, ha- it creates something like a garlic flavor in your mouth. Yeah, yeah, I've heard so, of that. Yeah. So, so once you have that, you're, it's too late. I mean, it's too late. That, yeah, yeah. And unless you're you know, aware, you know, if, if you see it, yeah, because it's a it's an oily substance actually at room temperature. Yeah. And this was the problem when the Germ- the Germans invented it in World War II. They called it Kampfstoff, the, the battle stuff. Well, you know. Okay. And and what they would do is they would just un uh, they would unscrew the canister with it and and hope that the wind would blow it toward the enemy. So oh, of course it yes. blew it, and it would volatilize because it, yeah. it, it's a volatile compound, but it, it's basically a bioether. It, it would yeah. it, it would blow back on them. Yeah. So it was it was a really uh, horrible. Uh, yeah. Some some mad scientist developed it and thought, oh, this will be great. Right. So, Everybody suffers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. So anyway, so that was so that was a part of what I was working on, and then uh, and then I also worked on some ultraviolet uh, irradiation uh, induced uh, apoptosis in uh, leukemia cells near the end of my kind of laboratory time. But uh, during all of this time, I was uh, also on a spiritual journey. Uh, my wife and I both were uh moving from kind of a Protestant background to, to looking for the historic church. And we you know, they're either you either go to Rome or you go to toward a little bit further east. We ended up going further east. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh when you go back and ha- and have to think about suffering, uh and, mm-hmm. and, and or or just your if you if you I don't know, at least for us when we were taking our, our uh, trying to take our spiritual journey seriously, and, and she is a physician as well, a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. We were already seeing a lot of suffering. She was taking care of patients uh, in our hospital's AIDS clinic uh, when they were all terminally ill. And, and, yeah. and so she was having these remarkable stories of people who had lived very kind of wild, chaotic lives, yeah. suddenly having to confront their own mortality. And, yeah. and and having some profound kinds of spiritual experiences, and that really struck both of us as we were kind of thinking about our own work. You know, how how much of what we were doing as physicians was sort of focused on the the, the typical medical model, which is basically driven by disease categories. You treat the disease, you get paid to treat the disease, as yeah. opposed to here's a human person who's suffering. The, the disease doesn't suffer, but the person does. And yes. how do we actually care for that person who eventually will die anyway? Now, I, it doesn't mean that I, I value very much the, the the wonderful innovative advances that have occurred in, in Western medicine where, yeah. where we can sort of delay death. But that's mm-hmm. what we're doing. Even, if, even when we cure a particular disease, something else will take its place. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and that's the reality that, that kind of struck both of us. And 
and I was also doing some hospital administration at the time, I tried to I wanted to introduce this kind of approach, the, the palliative medicine approach in our hospital, and I couldn't get takers. I mean, initially, I mean, my colleagues in geriatrics who so I approached to do it, the person said, "Well, we're going to cure aging." <laughs> oh, really? Right. <laughs> uh, I think they, I think they've come around since, but, but uh-huh. we we we, used to, we joked about it years later. Yeah. But. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, I, I left my administrative position. I, I and I and I kind of with some regret, I could I, I really enjoyed the laboratory experience. I felt yeah. a, a vocation at this point, in my kind of mid career, to go back mm-hmm. and get training uh, during a sabbatical in palliative medicine. And then I went back and practiced that in con- uh, conjunction with surgery for several years mm-hmm. uh, before then just shifting to palliative medicine completely. Mm-hmm. But but that but having that background sort of at the at the microscopic level, you know, of, of seeing how death is so pervasive, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in so many different levels, uh, has had a profound kind of informative element for me. There's one other aspect of the apoptosis story that you may be familiar with, but it's, just, it's very striking, mm-hmm. is that when the apoptotic bodies form, that's these, the cell starts to fragment. Yes. And it, expo- it exposes various moieties on the surface of the cell are these fragments that basically make them very attractive to their neighbors. So they get phagocytized, they get eaten by their neighbors. And so in uh-huh. some sense you, you die for your country. You know, yes. And you and you serve as a, a source of nutrition for them. So yeah. you almost like it's almost like a Eucharistic kind of image. Which you can't yeah. it's hard to Gosh, escape think about that. More, yeah. And and so that that's a very striking element. That, and you know it's and the and the, the the weird thing about this and perverse thing about it is that I mean there are lots of different ways to define cancer, but one of the features of cancer is that is the cancer cells typically uh, evade or escape from the normal res- signals to to undergo apoptosis to undergo programmed mm-hmm. cell death, mm-hmm. and and when they do that, they theoretically are are immortal as right. long as they can as long as they can you know get nutrition, right and right. and. And so you have, in this world that we live in, cancer is is immortality. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a very topsy-turvy kind of view, but it's something to think yeah. about. Yeah. And when you step back and, and you realize then, as far as we can see from our perspective, and I'm uh-huh. even, you know, not necessarily speaking particularly from a religious perspective, but yeah. mortality is, is, is baked into our existence. Yeah. And, 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 and again, now from looking from a, from a, from a metaphysical, religious Christian perspective, it's also mm-hmm. blessed them. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise we would basically be like cancers. <laughs> right. We just more, right. We'd be, we'd become more and more evil. And, and not, and, you know, in this sort of uh, kind of uh, greedy, uh, self-absorbed way that, yeah. that the cancer cell functions in such a nice metaphor to describe. Yeah, I mean that 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 brings up such a dreadfully vivid image of cancer cells as demons in their own little hell, being stored in a uh, in a uh, as a cell line in a laboratory somewhere. That's uh, yeah. That's, that's kind of chilling. Well, and I think the other interesting thing about the biological revolution is, you know, there was a lot of disappointment, I think, in the, in the biological uh, research community when it was discovered that we only had about 30,000 genes in the human genome and that it was about 95% homology with the chimpanzee. 
Yeah. So what's so special? Yeah. But what's, <laughs> but what's become evident is, is that it's those are like instruments in a in a large orchestra, and yeah. it's the ep, it's the epigenetic influences that are that are calling the shots. Yeah. There's well, not, like the there's like the alkylation you were talking about. Yeah. Or, or, or DNA methylation is known as a, as a marker for certain kinds of epigenetic changes or, yeah. or changes to histone, acetylation of histone, uh, the histones that, you know, kind of fold around the chroma, uh, chromosomes. Uh, uh, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't in any way eliminate the possibility that there are other influences out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so in terms of the, of, of, of a Christian metaphysical worldview, and, and not just the Christian, but also Jewish tradition or, or, or Islam and so forth, that the sense of, of, of evil uh, spiritual influences that might have some capacity to to alter uh, through the epigenetic process uh, the fates of, of uh, living organisms. And of course, the other distressing thing about this is that if these epigenetic phenomena affect germ cell lines, then you have it going through multiple generations. So that, yeah. so even the, you know, the famous, uh, mosaic comment about the sins of the fathers going down through multiple generations. Yeah. It, yeah. you can see even a biological cognate of that. I mean, this is, uh, so when people abuse their bodies, yeah, and then they're planning to have children. They need to think, you know, that it's well. I can do whatever I want. Well, no, well, you do, but you're also going to doom someone in the future to be suffering yeah. because of your behavior. Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of uh, of aspects to our sort of highly individually individualized, atomized, autonomous existence that uh, in in the postmodern culture that fly in the face of certain biological realities yeah. and 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 beg a lot of questions. Yes. Even even for those who, even for a person who is not, you know, particularly interested in religion, they have to, I think they need to confront these things because yeah. uh, if you want to be an honest citizen of reality is for coming to understand it. Or have any sense of responsibility for your fellow human beings. I mean if you yeah. if, you know if you're completely yeah have no sense of compassion for them, then I guess it doesn't matter. You know, so what? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. That was where we broke the interview for today. Be sure to tune in next week where we continue talking about the frontier between medicine and faith. Thanks for listening.